Please rise for the reading of the Old Testament. Today's lesson comes to us from Job chapter 28, verses 20 through 28. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind, the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Today's New Testament lesson is taken from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Shall we pray? Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. The heated argument between Job and his three friends has come to a halt. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have been unable to convince their suffering friend that the reason why he has lost his family, health, and possessions is because he has sinned and he needs to repent. Indeed, Job refuses to budge from his conviction that he has done nothing whatsoever to bring God's judgment down upon him. We have also witnessed Job's faith and hope slowly but surely beginning to grow, even while his friends accuse him of all kinds of sin, which he hasn't committed, and of becoming something that they call a belly wind. After three cycles of speeches, Job's friends finally have been silenced. The sufferer now assumes the role of teacher repeatedly defending his good name and crying out to God to vindicate him, this time Job almost goes too far. But before he can do so, he is silenced. Job will get what he asks for. Job will get his audience with God. He will get a lesson in the mysteries of God's providence, a lesson that will finally put everything into perspective. Well, we've come to that section in the book of Job, chapters 28 through 31, where Job now looks back on those days before he lost everything, contrasting the joy of days past with his present misery. 
And Job will make yet another impassioned defense of his personal honor, again insisting that he be vindicated by God. Now apparently all of the speeches from his friends, including Job's replies, as well as this closing speech, are overheard by a crowd of onlookers, one of whom, Elihu, will speak his mind when we resume in several weeks in Job chapter 32. Elihu agrees with Job that his three friends have widely missed the mark. But Elihu will also assert that Job has erred by insisting upon vindicating himself when instead he should have been seeking to vindicate God. That speech from Elihu in turn then sets the stage for what follows in Job 38 through chapter 40 verse 2 when God himself speaks to Job, giving Job the very thing he's been demanding, an answer to the mysteries of providence and the suffering of the righteous. And when God speaks, all of the participants fall silent. The Lord will have the final word. Now recall that the main argument raised by Job's three friends is this simple syllogism. God is holy. God must punish all sin. Job is being punished. Therefore, Job must have sin. This simplistic solution is repeated relentlessly over and over and over again by Job's friends, and it's designed to encourage Job to come clean and to repent of his sins so that God can restore him. And as we've seen, his friends are increasingly frustrated because Job won't admit what they think to be obvious, that the wicked live short and miserable lives. And since Job is the one who is sick, since Job is the one who is suffering, the conclusion is obvious to his friends, Job must be wicked. Now, while Job never denies that this argument contains some degree of truth, the fact of the matter is that not only do the wicked prosper for a time, but the righteous also suffer for a season. But the primary reason for Job's indignation with his friends is that none of those things apply to him. Job is a justified sinner whose faith in God's promise to save him from his sins is now manifest through his fear of God, through his shunning of evil, in his blameless and upright behavior. Job knows that he's done nothing to provoke God's judgment upon him. The retributive principle of God's justice, as understood by his friends, is not only wrong, it doesn't apply to Job. Now, Job knows that God's sovereign, and Job has no doubts whatsoever that God can do what pleases him. The question is not whether or not God can do as he pleases. The question is, why has God allowed this righteous and blameless man like Job to suffer? Now, if God is as good as Job thinks he is, believes him to be, then God must vindicate Job in the end. And that's why Job is not at all satisfied with the wooden application of the principle of divine retribution offered over and over and over again by his friends. Slowly but surely, Job is beginning to realize that what he needs is a heavenly mediator, a, a go-between, a redeemer, who will intercede before God on his behalf. And while Job dismisses the theological errors of his friends, not to mention the self-righteous and cruel way they have sought to counsel him, Job now begins to think out loud about the mysteries of divine providence. And so we end up in this situation where on the one hand, Job offers a stirring confession of faith in chapter 19. I know my Redeemer lives. 
Well, on the other hand, Job can turn right around and claim in chapter 27, verse 2, that God has denied me justice. Now, Job knows he's innocent, but he can't yet fathom the mysteries of providence. And so in the midst of his pain and humiliation, he boldly professes his faith and yet at the same time demands an answer as to why God seems so far away and why he is not vindicated. Well, Job will get his answer, as we'll see in a couple of weeks. Now, last time we covered the first two chapters of Job's closing speech in chapters 26 and 27 that serve as Job's reply to the final speech from Bildad as well as to all three cycles of speeches. And we continue with Job's closing discourse, picking up where we left off last time in Job 28, where Job now returns to that theme of God's wisdom, which in many ways is a continuation of something Job has said earlier back in chapter 27, when he said, I will teach you about the power of God, the ways of the Almighty, I won't conceal. Job then has become the teacher. The seeker of wisdom now becomes the instructor, and his friends fall silent. Now, throughout this entire discourse, Job's true piety and deep spiritual fervor have been readily apparent, even though his friends can't see it because they're offended by the fact that Job doesn't agree with them. And now that the debate is over and nothing's really been settled, Job continues to explore the question, where can true wisdom be found? Well, for one thing, he knows his three friends don't have true wisdom. They can't even explain why wicked people prosper or why the righteous suffer. The lack of wisdom can be clearly seen in Bildad's final speech back in chapter 25 when, out of a sense of frustration and anger, he told Job that men and women are nothing but maggots. Not a good way to influence people and make friends. Now, while men and women are indeed sinful, the fact that men and women are still divine image bearers requires Job to embrace a higher, a more biblical view of human nature, a a wiser view of humanity. We have been created but little lower than the angels. And yet Job knows that men and women are sinful. But he also knows that we're not maggots. And it takes divine wisdom to move beyond this faulty view of his friends. Now, the quest for such wisdom is beginning to occupy Job's full attention. And so in the first 11 verses of Job 28, and you might want to turn your Bibles to Job 28, Job now begins to express his deep admiration for those who mine the earth seeking buried treasure. Now, Job doesn't do this because he's interested in mining, but he does it to make a point about wisdom. Says Job, There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the furthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft in places forgotten by the foot of man. Far from any dangles and sways. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it. No lions prowl there. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rocks. His eyes see all its treasure. He searches the sources of rivers and brings hidden things to light. 
Now, despite the amazing ability of the men of Job's age to mine the earth for its great material wealth, as stated in verse 12, Job is aware that true wisdom is not found in the mines of the earth, nor among its creatures. But where can wisdom be found, cries Job? Where does understanding dwell? Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are limited to natural revelation, just like men and women are limited to the earth when searching for precious minerals. And while they're ingenious in their quest for wealth, they're limited to the earth. But true wisdom, which comes only from God, can't be found in riches, and such wisdom can't be purchased, nor can its depths be plumbed merely through the observation of the earth or its creatures. And so beginning in chapter 13 and verse 13 of chapter 28, Job makes his case that divine wisdom is that real treasure that men ought to be seeking. Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of live, the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. In other words, nothing is as valuable as that which God reveals in His Word. Job knows, beloved, what he needs. He now knows what really matters. His suffering has made that very clear. And thus in verse 20, he again asks that haunting question. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? Job knows that only God possesses infinite wisdom, and such wisdom can't be found in the land of the living or the dead. And Job continues this quest in verse 21. It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and He alone knows where it dwells, for He views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when He made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then He looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. Now, God's wisdom, then, is the foundation of all created things, a theme which is taken up in the book of Proverbs, chapter 28, verses 22 through 31, where wisdom is personified in the person of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And listen to these words from Proverbs about wisdom. God brought me forth as the first of His works before His deeds of old. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. In other words, wisdom here is eternal because this wisdom is Jesus Christ. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was given birth. Before He made any earth or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when He set the heavens in place. When He marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when He established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when He gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep His command. And when He marked out the foundations of the earth, 
Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind, that is, Jesus Christ, who is wisdom. For while God's wisdom is indeed the foundation for all created things, the content of that wisdom is difficult to specifically identify since natural revelation is so easily distorted because of human sinfulness. And so divine wisdom, therefore, must be fully revealed in special revelation, in God's speech, in his acts of redemption. And since wisdom is codified or written down in God's law, particularly in the contents of the covenant of works that God made with Adam in Eden, the specific terms of which are republished for us in the Ten Commandments. Now, the realization of the fact that true wisdom must be revealed to us by God is therefore the place to begin the quest for true wisdom. And it's clear after all of this that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar have not discovered true wisdom based solely upon their observation of the world and the lives of those around them. And having suffered to the degree to which he has suffered, and having heard the best arguments that his friends have to offer, Job knows that Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz have not discovered true wisdom. He knows that unless God reveals true wisdom to his people, it'll never be discovered by mere observation. And so Job declares in verse 28, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Now, everything done apart from such wisdom is only so much vanity. And Job now sees this in the boneheaded arguments of his three friends. To seek wisdom apart from God's self-revelation is to cut oneself off from the only source of true wisdom. To seek wisdom through the observation of the people around you is like trying to study astronomy without the use of a telescope. It's not that what you observe is incorrect. It's just so limited. True wisdom must be sought where God reveals it, in the moral law, which is the foundation for natural law, to fear God, which is to be consecrated to God through His covenant promises in the gospel and through their ratification in the sacraments. The fear of God is the source and the chief part of all wisdom. Again, those words of Job amazingly anticipate the words of Paul seen in one of those glorious doxologies in Romans 11, our New Testament lesson this morning, where Paul writes, just echoing what Job says here, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, and we'll find out more about that in the weeks to come, and his paths beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who's ever been given to God that God should repay him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Simply put, to fear God means that we seek wisdom where God reveals it in his word and not by looking within or through some personal experience or through the observation of our neighbors as Job's friends had so lamely tried to do. For no one has known the mind of the Lord unless and until God reveals his mind to us in his word. That's what Job is seeking. That's the wisdom that Job is now after. And so in chapters 29 through 31, we find Job's final protest as the debate is now over and the stage is being set for God's amazing encounter with Job, 
which brings this book to a close. Now, in this final monologue, Job restates and summarizes his case. Throughout, he speaks both to his friends and to God. It's difficult to know to whom Job is speaking. But as one commentator points out, in this discourse, Job restates his opening complaint from chapter 3, but this time Job's words are toned down and tempered a bit from having passed through what this writer calls the furnace of three cycles of debates with his friends. Job has learned a little bit. He's, he's toned down the rhetoric a tad. Now, there are three main points in what follows. In chapter 29, Job recounts the days before his trial by ordeal began. In chapter 30, Job describes his present state, both his suffering and his humiliation. And then in Job 31, Job makes one more impassioned statement of his innocence. And obviously, a number of people are listening to all of this, including a certain Elihu, who we will meet in several weeks. Now, chapter 29 of Job is very poignant, given what Job once enjoyed in light of his current suffering. And Job's opening comments about the days in which he enjoyed God's favor reiterate what was said about Job in the book's prologue. And so we read in verse 1, Job continued his discourse. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. When the Almighty was still with me, my children were around me. When my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. We can just imagine a nostalgic tone in Job's voice and his eyes filling with tears as he looks back on what once was. He's lost so much and his suffering is so great. But given the fact that he now resides on the town Dunghill and he's the object of the scorn of all his neighbors, what follows in verse 7 is especially moving. But when I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside, and the old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed. Their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sin. The ultimate humiliation, as we just read a couple chapters ago, that the children who saw Job now laugh at him. And people, his neighbors, his friends who had formerly respected him, are grossed out merely by the sight of him. Now Job's faith in the God of the promise is clearly manifest in his conduct. In verse 14, Job declares, Look, I put righteousness on as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Men listened to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. And after I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me as showers and drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. 
Job had done none of the things his friends had implied or even accused him of doing. He was a blameless and upright man who feared the Lord, who shunned evil, and everyone knew it. The accusations made by his friends who were trying to stir his conscience so that Job would repent of his supposed sins were nothing but cruel lies and no doubt inflicted more pain than did the sores on his skin. And so in chapter 30, Job now describes his present predicament. The respect, honor, comfort of the past are now long gone. That man whom everyone respected is now the lowest of the low, an object of shame and loathing, says Job in the first 15 verses of chapter 30. And again, keep this in mind with what he's just said. But now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Of what use was the strength of their hands to me, since their vigor had, co- had gone from them? Haggard from want and hunger, they roamed the parched land and desolate wastelands at night. In the brush they gathered salt herbs, and their food was the root of the broom tree. They were banished from their fellow men, shouted at as if they were thieves. They were forced to live in dry stream beds among the rocks and in holes in the ground. They now detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off restraint in my presence. Terror is overwhelming. My my dignity is driven away as by the wind. My safety vanishes like a cloud. Imagine how far Job has fallen. Men who were regarded as dogs by polite society now look down on Job. His present predicament and the degree of his suffering is just almost beyond words. But what's worse, Job feels as though he's been abandoned by God. In verses 16 to 23, Job cries out, And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me to the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I'm reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you'll bring me down to death to that place appointed for the living. Job feels like God is persecuting him. He also feels as though God has abandoned him during his time of greatest need. But what Job fails to grasp and what soon will be revealed to him is that he's on the verge of being guilty for the exact same thing as his three friends. He seeks wisdom through his own experience and through his own observation. Yes, we need to cut Job some slack because as one writer reminds us, it must be remembered that Job was not a man of stone but a man of flesh and still being crushed by the serpent's coils. He's in the midst of trial, of course. He's going to cry out and speak like this. Now in verses 24 through 31, Job pours out his heart yet again. The very thought of his former life and feeling so estranged from God moves Job deeply and he cries out. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. 
When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My harp is tuned to mourning, and my flute to the sound of wailing. Sick with a fever, singing the song of mourning. This sad lament, I think, indicates that Job thinks that his condition is irreversible and that death is soon at hand. This is the cry of a man who thinks he's dying. Now, despite the humiliation, despite the sickness, what troubles Job the most is he still knows that he's innocent. Job again protests in this final speech. Now, in chapter 31, we have a a very interesting literary structure. We have what amounts to an oath of covenant allegiance. Now, in such an oath, the speaker calls down the covenant curses upon himself if it can be shown that he has violated any of the terms of the covenant. And this is a very similar literary form to uh, Hittite treaties that we have discovered in Mesopotamia to the effect that if a soldier failed in their duty, if they panicked or if they didn't keep their ground or advance as they were ordered, their commander had the right to break their limbs or smash their crops or take their wives. And a number of these elements in Job's speech have the exact same reference as we find in these Hittite treaties, the destruction of his crops, the breaking of his bones, and so on. And That not only helps us understand that this whole context is covenantal, but it helps us put the book of Job in its historical context. And we see that this is a very accurate book, and it comes, and we think it does, from the time of Abraham and the patriarchs. Now, the context for everything that follows is clearly covenantal, even though Job stands outside of the genealogical line of Abraham and the patriarchs. But Job clearly regards himself as a covenant servant of the great king, who is Yahweh. And Job is protesting the fact that, look, he's been faithful to all the stipulations of the covenant. And yet he's apparently receiving the covenant curses instead of the covenant blessings. And he cannot understand why all this is happening to him. And since it is the great king's covenantal responsibility to keep up his end of the covenant, in his final speech, Job invokes a solemn covenant oath. In other words, Job is demanding that things be made right. He wants, he's demanding the sovereign to honor this covenant agreement. Now, in the first eight verses of Job 31, Job again flatly denies the secret sins alluded to by his three so-called friends. Says Job, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. For what is man's lot from God above, his heritage from the Almighty on high? It did not ruin for the wicked. It is not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong. Does he not see my ways and count my every step? If I've walked in falsehood or on my foot, as my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me with honest scales, and he'll know that I'm blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then others may eat what I have sown and may my crops be uprooted. That's the same exact curse we know from these Hittite treaties. This is covenant language. And Job is protesting and proclaiming his innocence, not his sinlessness, 
but his innocence. The tension in Job's thinking now is brought out into the open. Job is terrified of God's approach, while at the same time he's demanding his day in court. That dilemma is only going to be solved by the presence of a mediator. Something that Job hinted at throughout the earlier dialogue, but something he now seems to forget. In verses 9 through 23, Job again appeals to his public conduct. Very important if a crowd has gathered and has been listening to these speeches from Job's friends, as well as Job's replies. His neighbors know firsthand how he's treated them, as well as his own servants and the poor. And Job confidently speaks in his defense. Look, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her. For that would have been shameful, a sin to be judged. If I have denied justice to my men servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both from within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor, let the eyes of the widow grow weary. If I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless. But from my youth I reared him as would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing, or a needy man without garment, and his heart did not bless me for warming him with a fleece from my sheep, I've raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court. Then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. Job's conscience is clean, which explains why he's going to invoke the covenant curses. He need not fear. Why? He's innocent. Job is a justified sinner. His conduct is blameless. And then in verses 24 through 40, Job denies trusting in his wealth. He denies the hypocrisy of which he's been accused. He's not worshipped pagan gods, nor has he treated people cruelly. Job need not fear this intense scrutiny of his life. Why? He's got nothing to hide. If I put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained, if I have regarded the sun and its radiance of the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged, or I would have been unfaithful to God on high. If I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life. If the men of my household have never said, Who's not had his fill of Job's meat? But no stranger had to spend the night in a street, for my door was always open to the traveler. If I have concealed my sin as men do, by hiding guilt in my heart because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. Oh, says Job, that I had someone to hear me. I... Now I sign now my defense. And listen to the change in tone. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give an account of my every step. Like a prince I would approach him. 
and with that the words of Job are ended. Now, to make the point that he's innocent to the terms of the covenant, Job demands a written accusation against him. But Job also demands to appear before the Almighty as a prince. Job may be innocent, but with these last words, something distressing has happened. Job is now thinking only of himself, and he's completely forgotten this quest for true wisdom. His complaint has become a tirade. He's on the verge of becoming just like Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. Bold and defiant, Job has nearly crossed the line. He now stands before the Lord demanding to be treated like a prince. He's on the brink of self-righteousness. He's offered a resounding defense of his innocence, something he has every right to do. But he now manifests a degree of arrogance which reflects that he too has much to learn, something which will soon be corrected in the form of the speech of Elihu, which follows in Job 32 through 37. Having allowed Job to endure this satanically inspired trial by ordeal, God will rescue Job before it's too late. Job has endured so much, and he still not blame God. And so God sends Elihu to interrupt Job before he goes too far. But Elihu's speech also prepares the way for God to appear and give to Job that answer that he has been so desperately seeking. And thus, beloved, it is an act of pure grace when Job is silenced. When God speaks to Job from the world, when as recounted in Job 38, Job will be reminded again of those words that began this speech. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Those words are right and true. And after the Lord appears to Job, and Job's arrogance is silenced, Job will indeed fear God. And then and only then, Will Job receive an answer and that vindication he's been so desperately seeking? When God appears to Job from the whirlwind, he will fear God. He will shun evil. And finally, he will gain that wisdom and understanding he's been seeking. And because God is as good and just as Job has thought him to be all along, God will indeed vindicate and restore his suffering servant Job, who has learned the fear of the Lord, shuns evil, and has gained understanding. Amen.